Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, this is Timothy Revel, New Scientist's Deputy U.S. Editor. Today we've got another episode of Escape Pod for you. That's the show we ran a couple of years ago to get some intellectual respite from, well, you know, that big thing that was rather top of mind in 2020 and 2021. But intellectual respite is always welcome, so we thought you might like to hear this episode for the first time if you've not heard it before, or once again if you have. This episode is all about alliances. We spoke about the symbiotic and beautiful properties of lichen, how carbon can create such an amazing array of materials, and finally, history's most prolific mathematician. Enjoy the show! So Rowan, what's in your escape pod today? Yeah, I wanted to talk about an alliance that everyone can see in your garden or in your local park, and on trees and rocks or even on the pavements. Um, actually, you know, I've started seeing it everywhere I look now. It's lichen. Ah, right, yeah. lichen. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fans of? It sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. Actually, are you fans? Are you fans of lichen? You too? Yeah, love lichen. I mean, oh, you I love lichen. Want, yeah, I love. I mean, I didn't want to say, but I actually been a fan of lichen way before you know before it was cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's cool, but uh, I think it's it's certainly overlooked, and uh, it's you know it's unflamboyant. But you know, I, I want to celebrate how wonderful the the alliance of plants and fungi is that you get in a lichen. Uh, or sometimes it's bacteria and fungi, but it's an alliance. So take a look next time you're out and about. And uh, just before recording this, I went outside with a magnifying glass and looked at some on a tree. And it's just wonderful, like a tiny city with so much structure in it and beautiful colour. So, yeah, it's an alliance. It's not a single organism. It's a symbiosis. It's an alliance that allows algae to survive exposure to ultraviolet light. And the algae has a shelter from the fungus. And in return, the fungus gets nice sugars uh, and food produced by photosynthesis. So the algae would dry out on its own. And that's why you only see moss and algae in damp and shady places. But lichen, when it's the algae is in an alliance with fungi, it can survive in direct sunlight. So you get this tiny ecosystem 
and it alters its environment too and because some kinds of have got these little hyphae these little roots that reach out and sort of gradually erode the rock that it's sitting on and that starts leaching out nutrients and you know other organisms can benefit from it it's really amazing did you know it's been to space yeah well there are lots of really cool ideas for it to be used in space because you could you can farm with it and, and get things you know grow medicines if you engineer it and yeah because it's so hardy uh, like you say it can survive uh, really harsh conditions even in space yeah, it's really indestructible. It was in space for, I think, 15 days. And then when it returned, it just carried on photosynthesizing like it like nothing had happened, even though it had been exposed to the vacuum in space. Didn't lichens play a big role in early Earth as well? Yeah. Um, or maybe it was the, we should say, the middle-aged Earth. So it was about 635 million years ago. And this is just after there'd been a long period of freezing. It's called snowball Earth. But when the ice finally receded, and that was about 635 million years ago, lichen gradually spread out. And as I was saying, you know, this nutrient release that it was doing very gradually and it was photosynthesizing and more and more oxygen was uh, being produced. Uh, And that allowed, that facilitated the rise of the animals. Um, And we need oxygen. Uh, So it's thanks to them, really. Uh, You know, it took 100 million years, but, you know, planetary transformation is a slow process. Yeah, so they helped stabilize oxygen levels on the planet, right? Uh, yeah, they do. But, you know, you don't need to get that epic about them. I think it's just nice to enjoy what they look like. As I was saying, you know, go and have a look with your magnifying glass. Um, I wasn't even going to focus on lichens today, but I was reminded of, of them when I was watching uh, Back Garden Biology on YouTube. This is a lovely little lockdown series by an old friend of mine called Lindsay Turnbull of the University of Oxford. She's an ecologist and she's making these lovely little films about stuff in your back garden or your local park. If you look closely at the bark of the tree a bit higher up, you can see lots of bright orangey yellow things and some grey green things, all sort of crusty looking. And these are lichens. So if you Google back garden biology, you'll find it. What I was intending to mention, though, was the alliance between the trees in a forest um, that goes on, like the networking that goes on between trees. The networking? Yeah, so they share nutrients and information through their roots. Information as well? Yeah, so if if a tree is being attacked by aphids or some other herbivore, uh, the trees will warn other trees nearby by releasing ethylene gas, uh, and that's a sort of signal to the other trees, oh, there's something around here, watch out. And if a tree needs a bit of food to keep it going in the winter or something, uh, the neighbours help out. And uh, there's a famous bit about this in Peter Vollenben's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, where he describes finding the old stump of a beech tree that had been chopped down 500 years before, but the remnants of the tree, the bits of the stump, were still alive and they're being fed by the roots of neighbouring trees. So this is all about alliances, and I, I just love that you can see these deep and ancient alliances all around you when you go outside. Now, Anna, what's your escape pod? Well, if we're talking alliances, I can think of no greater example than the great cooperator carbon. Oh, the element carbon. Okay, go on. Okay, so, well, carbon is one of the most promiscuous of the elements, second only to oxygen in the number of different compounds it forms. And these range from oxides like carbon dioxide, carbonates, the whole of organic chemistry. So that's the molecules that make up life itself. Loads of others. 
And carbon alliances with other elements lead to this huge range of all the different compounds and the different properties and the roles in, in the world around us. But I didn't actually think that's the most remarkable thing about carbon in terms of its alliances. Oh, really? So what is then? Okay, so obviously life itself is quite important too. But I th- <laughs> Glad you've I, agreed. <laughs> have, to, have to give that one. But I think the real magic happens when a load of carbon atoms bond with just themselves. Because then, even then, the results can be as diverse as soot, diamonds, or graphite, like in pencil leads. And then there's all the nanocarbons, the buckyballs, nanotubes, of course, the world's favourite wonder material, graphene. And these are all different forms or allotropes of just pure carbon. Okay, well, I'm a biologist, so I think we have to, we might have to disagree about where the real <laughs> magic of carbon is. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, go on, you've convinced me. that Oh, I'm impressed on the range of materials carbon can make, uh, but go on. Okay, so in terms of the, all these different forms that carbon can make, it comes down to the different ways that at, the atoms in carbon are bonded and arranged. So... For that, you need to have a little think about how the carbon atom is put together. And I'll, I'm going to have a go at drawing a mental picture in your head. The basic carbon atom, a lot of people might know this, uh, has the nucleus. So six positive protons and six neutral neutrons. We'll just stick to just carbon-12. And that's all surrounded by six electrons. And the electrons are all negatively charged. They want to be close to the nucleus, but they're staying as far away from each other as possible. So you can imagine for the electrons, say, the 1960s astronauts before there were any workarounds for washing in zero gravity or I don't know you might want to think pirates who have always assumed have low hygiene aspirations anyway (laughs) where I'm going with this is you're thinking of characters that stink (laughs) and they want to get as far away from each other as possible but there's some object of shared interest that they all want to get close to at the same time treasure the treasure, yeah, or for the astronauts, it might be they're trying to get into, listen to mission control. Yeah. So you've got all these people hovering around trying to get a good view of the or earshot of the treasure or mission control or whatever, but they want to stay as far away from each other as possible. And if you think like that, you get an idea of the electronic structure in carbon, which gives you the basis for creating all these different allotropes. Of course, there's a bit more to it than that. Than that. Yeah, there always is, isn't there? Go on then. Yeah, so quantum mechanics, good old quantum, (laughs) lays down rules about how many electrons you can have at certain distances from the nucleus or energy levels. So you can kind of think of it as two of your characters are just a little higher up the pecking order. So they get to be a little bit close to the action. So then you've just got four hovering around in the next level a little distance away. And if if you think of the, especially if they're astronauts so they can float about, the best shape they're going to take to be as far away from each other as possible and close to the centre is a tetrahedron or like a um, triangular-shaped pyramid. And so if you think of that, that, that gives you the sort of template for the arrangement of atoms in one of the forms of carbon. Of course, electrons are a bit like people. They like to pair up. So... <laughs> Your four electrons really want to be paired up with another four electrons, and that could be from other elements, but it could also be other carbon atoms. So if you've got soot, you end up with a lot of dangling buttons. You know, it's, it's soot, it's a bit of a mess. But if you've got them really, really ordered with all these little triangular-based pyramids all at each corner of other triangular-based pyramids, all tessellated, you get a big, big structure of covalently bonded shared macromolecular 
electron strength. And that gives you diamond. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. And then if you, obviously diamonds are very, very strong. It's got lots of things, but there are materials that we get that are stronger that we're going to come on to. Go on then. So now let's say these carbon atoms only bond to another three carbon atoms. So if you're spreading out three electrons as far away as possible, then you're going to get a sort of triangular shape. And if you then tessellate that, the little nuclei in the middle will make a honeycomb-shaped lattice. And that's where you get the secret to the extraordinary strengths and electronic properties of graphene. <laughs> but we were talking about having four electrons. So if you've only got three of them bonded, you've got a spare one. And it, that is the one that gives graphene all its amazing properties because it gets delocalized over the whole structure. So graphene stacks on top of each other. You get little bonds forming between them. And that's then graphite, which is just pencil lead. So the bonds in between the layers aren't very strong. So just a, the friction of a pencil across a page is enough to break those. And it was very useful for physicists to use for their experiments because they could just use a bit of scotch tape, peel off the top layer of their graphite, and they had a pristine surface for their experiments. And so for years, people just threw these bits of scotch tape away until one notorious Friday night, Andre Guillaume and Kostya Novoselov decided to do some experiments on the stuff on the scotch tape, discovered graphene, and the rest, as they say, is history. So there you have Fantastic. it, carbon. Yeah, it's not just working together, but how the atoms work together, that makes all the difference. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. So Tim, how have you been escaping? So my escapism this week has been rereading the fantastic book, The Man Who Loved Only Numbers by Paul Hoffman. And it's about, about the life of the mathematician Paul Erdish. Okay, remind us uh, about him again. So arguably, he's the world's greatest ever human alliance maker. So mm -hmm. he was this amazing Hungarian mathematician who lived between 1913 and 1996. And he wrote research papers with over 500 mathematicians. And there is no mathematician who has published more papers than him. He published over 1,500 throughout his life. So an absolute monster of a mathematician. Um, so this, this is the guy... Uh, they say he's got you. You can make up your Erdish number, like so. He's the the Kevin Bacon of maths, right? Yeah, that's right. So like he's collaborated with so many people that now mathematicians um, sort of judge each other by how close they are to being a collaborator of Erdish. So Erdish, his Erdish number is zero, and then if you wrote a research paper with Erdish, your Erdish number is one, and if you wrote a research paper with someone who wrote a research paper with Erdish, then your number is two. So mine's actually four. And the, yeah, so the mean for um, mathematicians is five. So I'm one better than your average math mathematician in terms of Erdish number. Uh, is that on your CV, Tim? Uh, it's on my Twitter profile. I'm not sure it's actually on my CV. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But so the thing about Erdish was he was just such a character. Um, and it sort of explains why he wrote so many research papers, because he basically had no home and kept all of his possessions in a briefcase. And then he would just show up with his briefcase in hand at a random mathematician friend's house 
when the, the friend opened the door, he would declare, my brain is open. And then he would insist <laughs> then he would insist on staying at the friend's house for two weeks. They'd do maths basically 24-7. And then when his friend was absolutely exhausted and they'd written a few papers, he'd ask his friend for who, for some advice on who to visit next, and then he'd move on to the next person. But it was like it was sort of it was a bit of a mixed bag receiving edit at your house because on the one hand you'd almost certainly produce some new publications, but he would also expect his hosts to feed him. He basically couldn't do laundry, so you'd have to clean some of his clothes, and he, wow. he would just yeah he would just work nonstop, and he did this for decades, just going from one house to the next to the next via various conferences. And famously, it, when he died, it was just our, it was just a few hours after having solved another geometry problem. So it was he he just loved it. He did it all his life. It's making me think of Bob Dylan now, like constantly on the road, <laughs> yeah, constantly know. on constantly tour. touring. Yeah, the never-ending Erdish tour. Um, <laughs> but the, the book is really worth reading. So it, it's like it, you know, you really don't have to be uh, a maths nut to uh, enjoy the book because Erdish just loved maths so much that reading about him sort of makes you enjoy it as well, even if. You know, you you don't get that bogged down in the details in the book. A lot of it's about these really interesting stories. So, like one of the things Erdish is also famous for is he gave away quite a lot of his money. But the bits that he sort of kept for his own personal interests was he would set up these things that are were sort of like mathematical bounties. Um, They've since been called the Erdish problems, where basically when there was something that he didn't know how to solve, but he thought it would be good to solve, he'd put a price on it. So he'd say, if you can solve this, I will give you. And then the prize depended on how hard he thought it was. So when it was just within reach, it might be like $25. Yeah. But some of the highest ones were a few hundred dollars that that he would pay you if you solved a particular problem. And even now, one of his friends administers these problems. So there's sort of money set aside for if you solve one of these, there's a few hundred of them, Erdish problems. You can then go and uh, sort of claim your prize money, even though he's no longer here. Awesome. What a great, uh, great range of alliances we've had. I mean, I wonder whether uh, we should end this with Erdish actually wrote his own epitaph, um, which I think is pretty good. So on his on his tombstone, he insisted on have, having, finally, I am becoming stupider no more. <laughs> well that's all for this week's escape pod we'll be back next week do let us know what sort of things you'd like us to feature and we'll do our best to oblige we're on twitter at new scientist pod and do remember you can get a subscription to new scientist for 12 weeks for half price it's still available go to newscientist.com slash escape 12 for your bargain Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.